Good morning and welcome to Voice of the People Radio by and for the 99% for March 20th, 2021. And you are listening to Leonard Cohen's Democracy, which we always start the show out with because it's so appropriate. So we are KFGM 105.5 Low Power FM, Missoula Community Radio, streaming on 1055 KFGM, that's eight eight characters in a row, dot org, and now on podcast on anchor.fm or searchable on Spotify and other podcast apps under Voice of the People Radio Buy In for the 99%. I am Jim, your fill in long term <laughs> temporary sound man. 
and I'm joined with Linda Gillison in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and Mark Anderlich back at headquarters in Missoula. Howdy duty. (laughs) And later in the show, we have an interview with Missoula resident Steve Wells, who gets the distance trophy this week. He's calling (laughs) from Matagalpa, Nicaragua, to talk about COVID in Nicaragua. And we look forward to that. Uh, Not COVID, but Nicaragua (laughs) report. (laughs) And we broadcast from the historic Union Hall in the Missoula Valley of Montana, the ancestral home of the Salish people. And we are recording this show from the comfort of our own homes and which I've located in ancestral, you know, um, um, uh, native uh, populations. How about the folks that were living in Winston-Salem before they started planting tobacco? Yeah. You know, I'm learning more and more about them. There were the Cherokee who were all over North Carolina and the Lumbee, a really important group, but I just have learned that several of these groups, including the Thaura, spoke a language that's called Suan. So I think it's related to the language that's spoken to the Sioux out in the prairie. Spoken Probably by the Probably is. Prairie. Hmm. Yeah. So that's, uh, I'm learning more about them every time, but um, they were here and right. came in, and that was that. Right. So. And- and they probably passed on by where I am because darn if my son's domicile isn't right next to the Trail of Tears. <laughs> yeah, I know. And there is a substantial Cherokee population here, but I don't think they're in did they, they were the original occupants. So it- Yes, Mark. Yes, well, well, we, as always, we hope you are holding up out there in, in uh, Radio Land and uh, doing your part by staying at home as best you can and by wearing masks when you do go out into public and by frequent washing of your hands. This show is pre-recorded as our part in halting the pandemic. We hope you enjoy the show as we enjoyed learning how to put this together without going into the studio in the historic Union Hall. And we want to give old Mick a shout out as he is at home too. Hey, Mick. Hey, Mick. (laughs) Come back, Mick. (laughs) (laughs) And we hope friend of the show, Catherine Kanayau, gets better soon too. Yes, Catherine. Yeah. Oh, yes. I certainly hope so. It's been a wonderful guest. And the word of the week is organizing. All four syllables. I, I hear you are an organizer, Mark. <laughs> Can I hire you to come and organize my garage? How <laughs> well, <laughs> how, mu- how much would you pay? I mean, it, it depends on how much you're going to uh, pay me to do that, Jim. It'll be simple. You can have anything my wife says has to go. <laughs> <laughs> mm, I'll have to think about that one. But uh... <laughs> Yeah, but you know, it's that's not what our word of the week means, Jim. And um, oh, I imagine that. <laughs> yes, I know. I know. I set you up every week, don't I? Um, but if you do a web search on the word, um, mm-hmm. almost every hit are services to organize your garage or your kitchen or your business. Uh-huh. It's Naturally. almost invisible 
our word of the week and the meaning that we have. So I've noticed that in doing web searches now that if whenever you put in a any kind of a noun, it comes back or or pronoun, it comes back as a product. You would probably get, <laughs> you know, organize the the uh, you know the interactive game and they list you five or six different sources and <laughs> buy um, things to buy yeah things absolutely. to buy yeah glad that and glad the internet's not being monetized oh yeah well god forbid <laughs> so um actually uh so what happens in what sense are you and were you an organizer, Mark? Well, I, I still am. I can still consider myself one. But w- one of the masters of organizing was Fred Ross Sr. He said, organizing is providing people with the opportunity to become aware of their own capabilities and potential. And I think that's way more significant than having an orderly garage, right? Mm-hmm. Indeed it is. It- presuming you even have a garage yes <laughs> in these times yeah so i don't you know, think i've har- ever heard of a fred ross yeah well he's hardly anyone knows his name um if you do a google search you'll find more on him right. than you will on organizing <laughs> right you'll get ross shoes in <laughs> yeah right right but but not not a whole hell of a lot more but he you know and that's would be okay with him I think um, it's the hundreds, if not thousands of people he trained to be organizers. That is, is his biggest legacy. And that includes Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta of the United Farm Workers Union in California. That's amazing. <laughs> that, um, you know, those, those people are, you know, luminaries, titans in the world of labor. Mm-hmm. So good for him. So, yeah, yeah. yeah, Chavez and Huerta were not organizers before Fred Ross trained them. That's correct. Yep. Yeah. uh, Organizers don't drop out of the sky. Right. Um, And uh, and as as the definition goes, uh, Ross helped them become aware of their own capabilities and potential. And then they took off from there, in turn, training hundreds, probably thousands of new organizers themselves. Okay. So how did Ross and other organizers go about doing this? Well, first of all, kind of back up a little, there are several kinds of organizing, union, community, movement organizing, but they all have in common several ideas. And first of all, is that people potentially have the power to change their community, their workplace, their nation. Okay. Two, it is individuals working together according to a plan or strategy that builds power to make those changes. And three, to build a cohesive organization that works together, building power with a common strategy, it takes natural leaders trained as organizers. So the elements needed are an issue that needs to change, a group of people that needs to change, a plan of action to make the change and an organizer to pull things together. That's the basic idea. Exactly right. 
So the organizer assesses who are potential organic or also called natural leaders in the group. And we covered mm -hmm. this actually last fall, if you remember Jim about organic leaders. Mm -hmm. um, the organizer approaches them and asks them to organize the rest of the group with the organizer. In other words, the organizer knows that it is neither possible nor desirable for the organizer to organize the entire group by themselves. As Fred Ross also said, you don't develop new leaders. You push people into taking action by refusing to do it yourself. Mm. You, are, you are then providing them the opportunity to become aware of their own capabilities. End quote. Of course, there's guidance in there, but sure, sure. It, it, it's the basic idea. And in that way, the organic leaders develop themselves into effective leaders. They are key influencers of the group who wants change, who can then, after brief training, independently recruit new people never before involved. So it's a learn by doing kind of thing. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, uh, I'm familiar with a lot of people that uh, have an idea of what needs to be done, describe the expectations, and stand off in the distance. But this <laughs> seems this seems to be much more of a cascade training model where it is. Know, yeah, you, you, you're, the you're people right. People with the understanding are mentoring actively. Right. And then in those who, you know, learn that and do some organizing, go on to teach others. Right. It's it is a total mm -hmm. cascade thing. And organizing is not rocket science or medicine or engineering. Um, you don't need a college degree to be a good organizer. It is freely available to anyone who has an interest in it. And I also believe it is something most people have some capacity to do, even if it's just on a small scale. Mm, yeah. Organizing is part of our common heritage, like language or cooking. Absolutely. Yes. Mm -hmm. Jane McAlevey, perhaps our current organizing mm -hmm. heir of Fred Ross Sr., wrote in her book, No Shortcuts, Organizing for Power in the New Gilded Age. She said, organizing places agency for success with a continually expanding base of ordinary people, a mass of people never previously involved who don't consider themselves activists at all. That's the point of organizing, end quote. And that's how power is built. Basically, yes. And here's McAlevey again. In the organizing approach, specific injustice and outrage are the immediate motivation. But the primary goal is to transfer power from the elite to the majority, from the 1% to the 99%. Ah, so the goal is not only win on an issue, but to empower the 99% to do a whole lot more changes. Exactly. And that's probably the critical difference right there. Um, this is the potential capacity that Fred Ross talks about. McAlevey continues, individual campaigns matter in themselves, but they are primarily a mechanism for bringing new people into the change process and keeping them involved. And I might add also learning how to do organizing as well. Mm -hmm. um, Ordinary people help make the power analysis, design the strategy, and achieve the outcome. They are essential, and they know it, end quote. 
organizing is then something that is approachable by anyone, right? That's right. Unlike the methods of advocacy and mobilization favored by nonprofits, most unions and social change activists, organizing done well opens up profound possibilities for ordinary people. It respects and employs the potential power that they have. You mentioned advocacy and mobilization as opposed to organizing uh, as change methods favored by other groups. That's intriguing. What, what do you mean by that? Well, and this is a distinction that McAlevey makes um, and, uh, in, in her book. Um, and <clears throat> advocacy is simply a, a person who, through their ex- expertise or position in society, speaks for the group to those, speaks for the group needing change to those who have the power to make a change on an issue. Think of an attorney that files a suit in court. The group has little to nothing to do but to be passive recipients of whatever the advocate can get for them. Advocacy does nothing to change the power of relations, but in fact often reinforces them, even if the advocate wins. Mobilization is something all activists are familiar with today. It is what political parties do to turn out the vote, for instance, or it is the protest demonstration on the courthouse lawn. Ordinary people are recruited to participate, but their involvement usually ends by attending the event or by voting. As with advocacy, the existing power relations are usually not changed, and so is not organizing in the sense that we are discussing it. Mobilizing in this sense is seen as a strategy. Real organizing, however, sees mobilization and sometimes advocacy as tactics serving a bigger strategy. And tactics are simply the tools of action that are used to fulfill the strategy or plan. Oh, it seems that genuine organizing takes a lot more work and time than either advocacy or mobilization does. Oh, brother. And uh, yeah, I think you hit the, yeah, <laughs> you hit the nail right on the head. And I think, and I think that's often the reason why it's not done. But there has been little to no change on the major issues such as economic inequality, climate destruction, racism, or the control of our democracy by the oligarchy. The suffrage movement, the union movement in the 1930s and 40s, the civil rights movement since then, and other successful people-powered movements for change have all employed heavy use of organizing. And the changes that they have won through use of real organizing have been lasting changes, yes. not sort of temporary band-aids. Yeah, and um, absolutely, perfectly stated that both the suffrage union uh, movement and uh, civil rights movement and labor movement have been in it for the long game. And pe- people got involved, devoted themselves to it, and may not have seen any effect in their lifetime, but they were still committed to the cause and they still did what they could. Yeah. And they brought in a cascade, a cascading <laughs> amount of new people all the right. time. Because that's, that's the whole point. And, and the engagement uh, becomes deeper and it becomes continual and not just a mm-hmm. one-off. So, and, and you know what, I'll, I'll have to say, any activist who's 
worked as an activist for much, uh, for much time will know how frustrating it is um, if you're just an activist because you've got to get your people together every single time something comes up. Every mm -hmm. time you've got to sort of beat the bushes and say, well, somebody come and do this or whatever, whatever. Try to mobilize people. With organizing, your organized community establishes itself, right? Mm -hmm. yes. They're yeah. organized to take the next action that they think is appropriate and the next action that they think is appropriate. Unlike the people with whom activists often work who just say, yeah, I'll come to I'll do this one thing, but um, they oh, disappear gotcha. because it's not a community that's talking amongst itself and mm -hmm. saying, what's the next thing we have to do and how do we do it? How do we right. make that change? And that, that the power lies with us. It doesn't lie with somebody to whom an advocate would yeah. speak for us. Right. right? Yep. Yeah. I, I offer that there, there, there's a cultural issue here. We live in a society where people have been have been surrounded by the assumption that every every action can be quantified and shown to have, um, you know, success on the very short time scale. And it's it's about taking specific actions. It's not about behavior that becomes a habit and a way of life and a belief system. You know, it's almost like wanting to lose weight. You can, you know, you can ask, you can, you know, type in weight loss and you'll get 10,000 diet plans and, you know, uh, fraudy schemes. Or there's the instruction, well, for, for the rest of your life, you're just going to do it this way. End of discussion. So, mm -hmm. you know, organizers have to be people that, um, and I'm being presumptive here, Mark, because you're a true professional and I'm just a dilettante, but um, organizers have to be people that are wedded to the concept that it's a, it's going to be a behavior change and you're going to have to, you're going to have to coach people along for a long, long time to get them to understand the little things that make it stick. Yeah. Two, two things on to that. Fred Ross has this great quote. He said, organizing is setting people on fire. Oh, <laughs> not, not literally, <laughs> right? <laughs> but um, but that's exactly it. If organizing done right changes lives, right? Right. Yeah. And 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 it changes and it changes lives to for people to be open to look at um, tactics that seem right now out of reach. So, for instance, okay, the tactic of a general strike the tactic of mm -hmm. massive non-cooperation, like what's going on, uh, you know, in, in uh, Myanmar, okay? Mm -hmm. The, the uh, you know, taking, not only just exercising power in officially legally approved ways, but taking power directly and saying, you know what? Uh, Congress is not acting fast enough on this. We need to, uh, either through a 100% strike or through, uh, you know, massive uh, civil disobedience, like what they're doing at the Enbridge uh, Line 3 pipeline, for instance. Um, it's that organizing opens up those possibilities because people begin to learn 
that um, where their power really lies and that working together in those ways, mm -hmm. uh, you can you, you can completely change society uh, in, in a relatively short time. Mm -hmm. Yes. You know, one of relatively the short time. Wow. OK, relatively. Yeah. And <laughs> <laughs> working with the poor people campaign. Uh, which talks about itself as a free as a fusion movement, but they largely work by organizing. And really, mm -hmm. the, one of the things that I appreciate a lot about events, which I usually watch because we're in Zoom now, right? But uh, is that real people who are impacted by the situation that needs to be changed? are the ones who are speaking up for themselves. It's not always William Barber. It's not always Leo, Liz Theo Harris. It's not always the organizers or the, I mean, it's not always the uh, head of the group, but it's regular people from West Virginia and Alabama. They're doing mm -hmm. their Monday, their moral Monday action this coming Monday is going to be Alabama and Bessemer at three o'clock Eastern time. So you can tune in for that. But that's one of the things I like because so many of the groups in which I'm involved in Missoula and uh, somewhat here in North Carolina also are middle-class, you know, middle-aged people who are trying to do something for other people. And Poor People's Campaign is an organizing campaign. They mm -hmm. organize to help poor people develop their capacities for leadership so that they can speak for themselves. Right. And, and, and Mick does that a lot. Um, not old Mick, but <laughs> faith collaborative does that. Oh. A lot. They bring people to, uh, to the legislature to testify and they're regular folks who are the ones who mm -hmm. are affected by whatever the issue is. So, um, I appreciate that a lot. I, I think it's the only way we're going to get forward with the big change that we need. Every oh. I, uh, I could not agree more, and I can't make too loud a shout out for the the interfaith co uh, cooperative. They they've uh, in, um, in the short time I've been in Missoula, I found that they that they're in, that they get interested in everything and and try to play a role mm -hmm. and push things forward. Okay, as usual, lots of news to cover from this week. Um, what's first in our current news, Mark? Well, despite the rollout, however slow, of some vaccines against COVID-19, the pandemic is still with us in the U.S. Overall, number of new daily COVID-19 cases is completely steady at a rate of 54,000 cases a day, um, which is still an amazing big number. Um, worldwide, most countries' rates of new cases is going down. There are two notable exceptions, the European Union and Brazil. Uh, for, th for those of you who believe that we need to risk COVID infection uh, to save the economy, the economy will not recover until people feel safe enough from the coronavirus and have enough money to spend into the economy. The World Health Organization advised governments that before reopening, rates of positivity and testing should remain at 5% or lower for at least 14 days, which of course means that out of all the tests conducted, how many came back positive for COVID-19 
should be 5% or less for two weeks. Montana, the past two weeks, has met the goal with a slightly rising positivity rate of 4%. Some of the highest positivity rates in the nation are still in Idaho, which is steady at 26%, and South Dakota at about 20%. Uh, Wyoming is steady at 4% and has met the WHO standard for partially reopening the economy. North Dakota, which had also exceeded WHO standards, has now fallen below them with a steady positivity rate of 5%. Montana has reported 51 hospitalizations as of Friday, a decrease of two from one week ago. And that is an improvement over earlier this winter. So only now, according to the WHO, can Montana begin to slowly reopen the economy? Uh, but things are on the way upon that they aren't, right? <laughs> Well, well, actually, there's um, there is some slow reopening going on, but things reopen. You know, uh, Governor Bullock reopened partially things back in the summer, where lots of other countries you couldn't go to a bar. Some states too, California, you couldn't go to a bar for a long time, um, and still, I think California is still that way. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it, we're just we're just we're, we're making sure that people do not forget this. Right. Because it's we, we have short memories, it seems like. Um, and we reopened way too soon, obviously, as we still don't have enough money in working people's hands as well, compounding the problems and trying to control the pandemic. Congress's ineffective action has put states in a very tough position, either close down the economy, control covid but severely reduce people's income or leave the economy partially open to allow people more economic security, but to allow the pandemic to infect and kill more people than otherwise would be the case. Naturally, but that's a cho Sophie's choice. No matter what you choose, it creates harm. Indeed, and these COVID-19 figures are according to the Johns Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Center website and the state of Montana. We are certainly nowhere done with this virus yet as it's still at large in the U.S. and spreading. At 540,000 deaths, the U.S. is still the world leader in COVID-19 deaths. As the COVID-19 pandemic took hold, life, expect life expectancy in the United States dropped one full year during the first half of 2020. According to a February 18th Center's for Disease Control and Prevention report, with even greater decline seen among Black and Hispanic people. The U.S. accounted for 20% of all the deaths in the world and for 25% of the confirmed cases, all with still only 4% of the world's population. Oh, an unwavering and unvarying statistic. Oh, it really is, isn't it? That is, mm -hmm. Yeah, one year later, the proportions are the same. The numbers are vastly larger. Mm -hmm. but the recipe is unchanged that yep. is a grim thing to be exceptional at mm -hmm. we've been saying this since february of last year's and we will keep saying it until the pandemic is completely beaten it is basic solidarity for everyone to wear masks to distance themselves from others and to frequently wash their hands if we are going to beat the this pandemic in montana uh, we need to continue to try to bend the curve down this way so our hospitals are not overwhelmed. Solidarity requires some sacrifice, but it is essential. 
for every person that does not do these precautions, we are that much farther from controlling the virus, achieving herd immunity through vaccination and fully reopening the economy. So speaking of vaccinations, Mark, how are we doing? Well, as, as I had said before, it's going slow and Montana has only fully immunized 15.2% of the population as of Friday. Uh, in Missoula County, appointments are now opening for those over the age of 60 and everyone who has certain health conditions of any age above 16. And the Biden administration has delivered on a promise to allow teachers, school workers, and daycare providers to get vaccinated by the end of the month. This despite Governor Gianforte pushing teachers off of the essential workers category for advanced inoculation with the vaccine. I was told by a teacher in Missoula County that most Missoula area teachers are well on their way to being vaccinated. That is finally some good news, but I'm afraid to ask how we were doing on the economic front. <laughs> um, please, please, please. Is there anything good, Mark? Well, as we covered last week, yes, there is actually the, um, the so-called COVID-19 stimulus package was passed and we covered this last week. So some of this is a little bit of repeat. And it is big. It's nine, $1.9 trillion big. And it's named the American Rescue Plan. And it will cut only a single check of $1,400 per person, making under $75,000 a year. So I've already got mine. Uh, most people have got theirs. Some people have not. So we'll see about that. Um, it is not much of a stimulus in that way. Much more money is needed to be put into people's pockets for that to happen. In the Senate, the stimulus checks became means-tested, which, as Representative Ilhan Omar of Minneapolis pointed out on March 6, we obviously are now ultimately sending money to less people than the Trump administration. There are going to be 17 million people who get less money. This is not the promise that we made, end quote. And not the 2,000 promise to voters in Georgia this January. That's right. And However... The ARP does break new and important legislative ground. Not, uh, it, it's not earth shattering, but it does break new legislative ground. The child tax credit expansion under the legislation will have the effect of a guaranteed income and increase the income of the poorest 20% of Americans this year by about 20%, which of course will mostly go pay rent, lenders, medical bills, and the like. That said, it looks as if the Biden administration is properly sending money to the lowest income Americans to have the best economic stimulus boost. And another new twist, according to the New York Times on May 7th, the ARP provides for $86 billion in funding for about 185 union pension plans that are so close to collapse that without the rescue, more than a million retired truck drivers, retail clerks, builders, and others could be forced to forego retirement income. The bailout targets multi-employer pension plans, which bring groups of companies together with a union to provide guarantee benefits. All told, about 1,400 of the plans cover about 10.7 million active and retired workers, often in fields like construction or entertainment, where the workers move from job to job. As the workforce ages, an alarming number of the plans are running out of money. The trend predated the pandemic, and as a result of fading unions, serial bankruptcies, and misplaced hope that investment income would foot most of the bills so that employers and workers wouldn't have to. 
The measure would give the weakest plans enough money to pay hundreds of thousands of retirees, a number that will grow into the future, their full pensions for the next 30 years, end quote. That's a really big deal. It is. Yeah. And you, you make unions less successful and you impede their organizing efforts and you give them stingy, nasty contracts and the chickens come home to roost. Right. Exactly. So, what else is in the ARP? Well, it includes the largest investment in Native communities ever, $31.2 billion for all kinds of long overdue investments in healthcare, housing, education, infrastructure, and to keep alive endangered languages. Hmm. That's excellent, uh, especially mm -hmm. endangered languages, because once they're gone, they're gone forever. Uh, absolutely. Um, further, there is a $39 billion investment in child care centers and $350 billion for state, local, and tribal governments, which that $350 million we're going to revisit at, toward the end of the show. Um, as the Daily Yonder, thank you, Linda, as the Daily Yonder <laughs> reported on March 11th, small local governments that receive little or no direct aid from previous COVID relief packages will fare much better in the new legislation that Congress passed. The American Rescue Plan will provide funds to each of the nation's 3,143 3, county-level governments, plus more than 26,000 municipalities. In 2020, the CARES Act provided direct aid only to cities of 500,000 residents or more, which basically none in Montana, right? Mm -hmm. Although states allocated some funding to additional local governments, which is kind of a little bit what happened here. And there are is little to no dollars going to the wealthy in this country from the ARA, ARP? ARP, yeah. I, uh, right, you are. However, wealthy people made out like bandits in the CARES Act passed a year ago. Didn't they, though? Mm -hmm. All that said, the American Rescue Plan is still a temporary but necessary Band-Aid. Exactly. As important as this legislation is, because many people are in desperate straits right now, it is still not big enough, nor does it provide the transformational changes necessary to undo the economic disparities that made the pandemic far worse than it should have been. For example, it only temporarily holds off the foreclosure eviction crisis just around the corner, though it does provide an additional $27 billion in emergency rental assistance. Uh, and for example, uh, Albina Asmanova, an associate professor of politics at the University of Kent, and Marshall Arbeck, a researcher at the Levy Economics Institute of Bard College, wrote the following for the Independent Media Institute on March 3rd, quote, Biden's stimulus is not the stuff of economic revolution. It's a mix of common sense and keeping the lights on. And the fundamental thinking behind the stimulus approach reflects a continuation of neoliberal policies of the past 40 years. Instead of advancing broader social programs that could uplift the population, the solutions are predicated on improving individual purchasing power and family circumstances. Such a vision of society as a collection of enterprising individuals is a hallmark of the neoliberal policy formula, which, as the stimulus bill is about to make clear, is still prevalent within the Democratic and the Republican parties. This attention to individual purchasing power promises to be the basis for bipartisan agreement over the next four years. The reality is that social programs on healthcare and education 
and a new era of labor and banking regulation would put the wider society on sounder feet than a check for $1,400. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And it seems to be forgotten that this is a Band-Aid. Yeah. We're going to be having to readdress the same problems three to six months from now. That is why the pandemic hit most people so hard. There was a terrible weakness in the economy to begin with. Absolutely right. Passing a $15 an hour minimum wage bill would have directly helped millions of workers pull themselves out of poverty and underemployment. It could have been a major structural change in the economic inequality within a bill that is just temporary and a Band-Aid. Unfortunately, many Democratic centers, including Montana's John Tester, voted down the increase in the minimum wage in the so-called stimulus package, killing it as part of that legislation. It could have been one part of getting our economy and our politics on sounder footing. Other programs that can be added to this list include Medicare for all during a pandemic. Just think of that. Mm -hmm. Um, Student debt cancellation, the Green New Deal, and a federal jobs guarantee. Simply getting us through the pandemic just sets us up for a meltdown as you mentioned, Mm -hmm. Jim, politically and economically down the road. What Congress should have done all along is what Representative Pramila Jayapal, Democrat of Seattle, proposed last year, which should have been the model moving forward to this year. Jayapal proposed, and what most industrialized countries in the world actually did, was to guarantee wages and business overhead costs for the duration of the pandemic. Yes, absolutely. In fact, I, I was stunned by a summary statement on a on a Pew uh, research report, and it was merely society still needs to dismantle and replace the underlying structures that generate these disparities. And while tax cuts and stimulus checks provide needed belief, relief, what can truly change the system is worker power. And I was stunned that these, you know, career academics and ivory tower inhabitants are coming out and and sounding like, uh, you know, communists. (laughs) Unlike Biden, right? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and and because it's becoming so obvious, right? I mean, uh, you know, if Mm -hmm. academics are saying this, right, then right uh it, it's it's uh, they're they're watching things right they're seeing things and oh they are there's limited things and it goes back to organizing right it, it's like the people need to be organized mm-hmm. to make these fundamental changes right. that that's that's the bottom line yeah and it, it segues perfectly into where we started in this segment mm-hmm. and it comes at a cost when people like um you know, Andrew Perry and Molly Kinder, who are fellows at Pew, uh, go around, you know, th- you know, throwing lightning bolts like that at the system, <laughs> you know, unless they want their next job to be in the, you know, hospitality industry, bussing tables. <laughs> so I, I give the major chops for that. Yeah. So if passed, what would the PRO Act do? Or am I getting ahead of ourselves? Oh, what is the next story? (laughs) Well, you're right. It's the PRO Act, which actually (laughs) is a a nice segue. And and so it is uh, on March 10th, the U.S. House of Representatives passed the Protect Our Right to Organize 
or the PRO Act. I mean, this is why organizes our word of the week. Um, with actually five Republican votes, along with all Democrats except Henry Cuellar of Texas. Um, Montana, yeah. Uh, Montana's lone representative, Matt Rosendale, voted against the PRO Act as well. The PRO Act largely undoes the Taft-Hartley Act. Oh, uh, Pat- good. Yeah. So for listeners not familiar with that, it was uh, Taft-Hartley Act was passed in 1947, which crippled the labor movement in the U.S. and the world by empowering bosses to threaten and overpower workers seeking to organize for basic human needs on the job. Taft-Hartley was also passed to prevent labor organizing from threatening the Southern plantation economy built on, <laughs> built like on Amazon, the ens- <laughs> like Amazon, right. Built uh, on the enslavement and violent oppression of black people. Taft-Hartley also had the effect of stripping unions of their most effective organizers who were largely communists and socialists which came in handy when President Ronald Reagan, a former union president, declared war on unions by firing the striking PATCO workers, the air traffic controllers for airports. It then became open season for employers to attack unions who were more or less helpless because of the removal of the communist and socialist organizers 30 years previous and the failure of unions by and large to keep up their culture of organizing that was so successful in the 1930s. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> and I offer that unions only had the boot lifted off their neck because there was an existential crisis in the developed world, the Second World War. And if you didn't keep people in the armory and in the foundries and factories producing war material to outproduce the other guys, um, we'd all be speaking German now, but oh, as soon as the existential threat is gone, it's okay. You guys did your job. Now it's, uh, you know, back in the pen, right? Yeah. That's kind of what happened. Uh, enjoy it while you had it. You did your job. Now, uh, we're, you aren't as dear to us as you were. Of course and, you and had ta- the, no, go ahead, Mark. Oh, well, the uh, Taft-Hartley act had, Uh, basically made all unions um, have all of their staff and their members sign agreements saying they weren't communists. Right. Right. And, and so, and when you refuse to do that, then basically it's, they're getting to trying to get them to renounce. If you refuse to do that, then you were fired. Mm -hmm. And that was, that was the beginning of the McCarthy era. People don't remember that, but that was actual start of the McCarthy uh, red scare era and yeah. um and unions were um a lot of union leadership was more than willing to accommodate that because there was a promise on the other side instead of you know continuing to organize and build worker power if unions just stuck to their knitting with their employers um mm-hmm. which is what created the middle class in this country um, then, um, you know, let's throw a few communists under the bus and, and it's all good. Well, you know, that came back to haunt labor unions, uh, in, in the 1980s when Reagan oh. fired the air traffic controllers. Absolutely. It's, um, and a, a very convenient 
reason for keep <laughs> for keeping defense spending going was we're we're in a holy war against the 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 heathen Ruskies and collectivists. So right, grab your right. and make sure those laborers don't get paid any more than they need or have any authority in the workplace. Or get paid really well, but don't right. don't try to change don't try to change the system. Don't rock the book. Mark, you you know better than I do many, many things, but particularly about how many unions there are which are not boat rocking unions today, right? Oh, oh most of them. They're, they're yeah. not organizing unions and they're right. not unions who are set to rock the boat to change power relationships, right? And right. that was the thing with the old CIO bunch. That's what they were all about, right? right. Yeah. E even within the labor movement, they were exactly. <laughs> rocking the boat. They were they were at hammer and tong with the AFL you know, leadership at the time, there were a few unions that bucked the tide. And, uh, and so, for instance, um, the uh, uh, International Longshore and Warehouse Union oh, yes. on the, on the West Coast, yeah. right, led by Harry Bridges, they, they gave the big finger to uh, Taft-Hartley, as did the, uh, um, the UE, the United Electrical Workers, um, mm -hmm. who um, actually, it's ironic, today per capita they're one of the fastest uh organizing unions and they've maintained that culture of union organizing so in my old union unite here had to revive it right and it was revived um and there's a few other unions that have revived it too but most i, I think there's a lot of unions looking at that now and going how can we do this um and so which is a good sign yeah you probably both know the terrific book that UE published, I think back in the 70s, and it's now in its third edition called The Unknown Story, The Untold oh, Story. Untold Story, yep. History of unions in the United States, and it's a it's a great history. No, it sounds like a, a great primer or, uh, you know, an abstract that, that hits the highlights. Right. Yeah. In fact, I, we should we should feature that there's there was also the Farm Equipment Union. That was very militant and the mine mill and smelterman's union, which uh, their local one was Butte, the Butte miners union. Huh. And, um, and so, and so there was, uh, you know, uh, all of those unions, uh, you know, in the late forties stuck with more or less stuck to the guns. I think mine mill smelterman's, uh, sort of threw enough people under the bus, maybe. I, I may be having that history mm -hmm. wrong, but eventually they were taken over by, they, they, have, they had a history of militancy. And I know some uh, former members uh, here in Montana who, when the United Steelworkers took over, they were like, oh, there goes, there goes our militancy. There goes our organizing culture, um, which I think the Steelworkers are really trying to revive that though too i think they're one of the one of the unions really looking at that most seriously so um well, I, think the UA, I know the ue has a new pamphlet out called us and them unionism about what it means to belong to the kind of union where mm -hmm. workers really run their union and they right. they're in a struggle with with the management, right? I remember when years ago, a young organizer in um, 
in Missoula told me that, or I found out and then I asked him about it, he confirmed it, that the AFL-CIO leadership was quite, quite close with Ronald Reagan back at the time of the uh, air traffic controllers. Yes. Strike. Hmm. Um, and he said, you know, it, it happens. So, you know, they get to be right. in the way like anybody else does. And mm -hmm. then, so. They, 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 get to, they get to be advocates instead of organizers, mm -hmm. right? And so in, in their position as head of the AFL, they, they, they begin to relate to, you know, their counterparts in government and industry right. more so. And you saw that like a year and a half ago with the United Auto Workers, where mm -hmm. their, their leadership uh, took bribes, you know, to, to funnel right, money right. from worker training to, mm -hmm. you know, to live, to live like a uh, high on the hog as if they weren't paid enough. And uh, it's just, it's just totally shameful. Yeah. Um, I, I, I'm glad you segued into that, Linda. Organizing is the word. Yep. Yep. Is the, it, in, at the time of the PATCO strike, um, you know, Solidarność was going on and mm -hmm. what, and what organizers in, in the, you know, free the Gdansk shipyards movement were perceiving over with the Patco strike was that, you know, Reagan was a good guy. He was fighting a communism in, uh, you know, communist bureaucracies and they, and they conflated Patco with, with, um, the labor organizations that had, that were complicit with the party and as being an obstacle to progress more than an instrument to enable it. And, and Les Valesa was going to come to North America and arrive in Montreal and then take a bus down to Washington then have a, you know, a big public moment with Reagan saying how much, you know, labor was behind Reagan because he was such a good guy. Uh, somehow somebody got to like and explain things and he changed his mind. But that Good. would have been really interesting because it almost happened. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad it didn't. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that wouldn't have been his most shining moment, would it? No, 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 no. He was he was a good guy at knowing where to be. He has a cushy job now as a general advisor and ombudsman without any real authority, but a comfortable position just to be less. Oh, wow. Less is more, I guess. <laughs> or lick. I'm sorry. Lick is more. <laughs> Boo. <laughs> yeah. So if passed, what would the PRO Act do? Can we speculate on that? Yes. Well, it, in it, it, it's amazing in what it could do, right? Uh, it would undo many of the key policies of the Taft-Hartley Act and contribute to the unraveling of its racist lineage. Among other things, the PRO Act would end right to work in 27 states, uh, limit employers' ability to classify workers as non-employees or independent contractors, expand card check election processes, which, okay. is, a more, which is a more friendly uh, worker-protected way of determining if workers want a union or not, um, prevent bosses from threatening and firing organizers and otherwise interfering in the union election process with impunity, which is what they do now. Mm -hmm. uh, 
permit workers to engage in solidarity or in secondary boycotts, which is really important, and prevent employers from permanently permanently replacing strikers, which is also very important. That frees up two really important tactics that organizers could really use, right? Or organize labor. The the Biden administration promised to pass the PRO Act, and it has been endorsed by more than 180 labor unions and 45 Senate Democrats, including our John Tester. And on March 7th, the Democratic Socialists of America launched its campaign to get the PRO Act passed in the Senate along with uh, IUPAT, which is the painters union. Uh, mm. the, event was, the event was held on Zoom with well over a thousand people on the call and featured DSA members, author Naomi Klein, US representative Jamal Bowman of New York and ended with Sarah Nelson, president of the flight attendants union. Um, we'll, we'll keep covering this campaign as it progresses uh, but it's not an exaggeration to say that passage of this bill would be a huge part of the transformation and revival of the U.S. labor movement. And the other, the other part of that, I'm just going to say this, mm-hmm. the other part of that revival is unions picking up, dropping business unionism and picking up organizing culture in their unions. You put oh, those two together, right. we, will, we will have a revived labor movement, no doubt. Here, here. I, I hear echoes of prior shows. <laughs> yes. A theme that we return to whenever possible. Exactly. And, um, and how did our very own Matt Rosendale manage to vote against the PRO Act? Gee, what did, <laughs> how, and what does he see that we don't, Mark? What's our problem? Well, that's what that, that was the question I had too, Jim. <laughs> I mean, I was like, Man, this guy is a really smart guy, and he's elected yeah. in the Congress, so he must know what he's talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I called his Washington, D.C. office and asked why he voted against the PRO Act. As he was just in the media last week, or this week, touting the quality union jobs that the Keystone XL tar sand oil pipeline project would bring to Montana. So I was thinking, well, he likes union jobs because they're good quality jobs. Mm-hmm. Well, his aide gave me two reasons. First, the PRO Act had called for too much interference in the relation between employers and the unions. Oh, and, the, right. and the second Get reason- Get rid of all those clumsy, clunky regulations. Yeah, there you go. Okay. And, and second, it did not provide protections for gig workers. Oh, uh. <laughs> oh well, great talking points. Low information voters are going to eat those up just like a bag of popcorn. Right. Right. Well, and both reasons are ridiculous, of course. First of all, as I told the aide, the PRO Act was basically just returning federal government involvement to the levels before 1947 when the Taft-Hartley Act was passed. And and actually it does, the act does more than that, but that's kind of the, the big, you know, the big points there. It is the law of the land and, and this is something, too, that um, people don't, a lot of people don't understand, including union members. It is the law of the land since the passage of the National Labor Relations Act in 1935 that the federal government officially encourages collective bargaining between all workers and all employers. And it officially encourages the resolution of disputes between the two through a grievance and arbitration system. 
That's this is the law. This is the intention of the mm-hmm. federal government. For for this to be effective, however, strong and independent unions accountable to their membership are absolutely needed. You can't collectively bargain when one side is organized and has all the power and the other side is unorganized and has no power. Um, that's not collective bargaining. Mm-hmm. The, the federal government does not pick one side or the other or choose the outcome of collective bargaining or choose the outcome of grievance and arbitration. Unions sometimes lose, employers sometimes lose. The only thing the federal government ensures is that it be done in a fair process. Rosendale's reason shows he is ignorant of U.S. labor law. Yeah, and there we go. You know, I, I'm, so searching, I'm searching hard to find anything nice to say about Mr. Rosendale. And he was not one of the Republican legislators that chose not to um, go along with giving medals to the Capitol Police yeah, on he's January 6th. Then <laughs> the, 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 uh, the, the representative in the first district of Maryland, Andy, uh, Andy Harris, who uh, it was in the same di- district as the um, you know community college that that Matt went to. So you know, that's uh, where he got so smart in Maryland, right? Yeah. In the Eastern Shore of Maryland, in the in the in the, in the swamps, you know. Mm-hmm. So you know, Andy Harris would not allow people to get medals for putting their life on the line to stop an insurrection. I got poison oak one time on, in uh, ocean city, Maryland. Eastern Shore. <laughs> okay. Understood. I just, I, I, I thought that random. Did you call Rosendale? Did you call yeah. Rosendale? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he's to blame. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, this, this was a long time ago. And, uh, anyway, um, so, uh, well, and then the other thing he talked about was the gig workers. And it's like, he, he's just, he's like, it, so this is a talking point I've heard other opponents of the pro act say, right? And it's another ridiculous, it's totally ridiculous. True independent contractors will not be affected by the pro act, but workers who are misclassified as independent contractors, right. when they are in fact employees, will be protected and given the legal rights to organize into a union if they wish, to be eligible for employee legal rights, such as overtime pay for working more than 40 hours in a week. This will largely eliminate some forms of uh, worker exploitation that employers have been practicing to increase their profits, like Uber and many others. Well said. May may I put something in there? Please, you bet, Linda. Um, today, I think only today, or maybe it was yesterday, uh, it was announced that the uh, Supreme Court in the UK has confirmed that Uber drivers have worker rights. May I read you a couple of paragraphs there? Please, please. Okay, this That's is great news. This is from the National Law Review. And uh, quite excellent source. In quite an opposition to. Uh, Prop 22 from California, uh, right, which was influenced by a payment of about a contribution of about $200 million by <laughs> colleagues. Okay, so uh, the National Law Review says the UK Supreme Court 
has decided that Uber drivers are workers for UK employment law purposes. In reaching that decision, the Supreme Court unanimously upheld the decision of the original employment tribunal and agreed with the decisions of the Employment Appeal Tribunal and the Court of Appeal. This judgment confirms that the Uber drivers in the United Kingdom are entitled to core entitlements, such as paid holiday and the national minimum wage. Um, let's see. Mm. Workers are entitled to core rights such as paid holidays, um, rest breaks, and the national minimum wage. Contractors are not entitled to any of these core rights. A worker is a person who works under either one, a contract of employment, i.e. a traditional employee, two, or two, any other form of contract, whether implied or expressed, orally or in writing, under which they undertake to perform work personally for another party, and the other party is not a client or customer of any profession or business undertaking carried on by the individual. So on it goes, but this is, uh, they've just come down on the opposite side from, um, of course, what Uber managed to, um, to uh, uh, get passed in California. Yeah, to pass yeah. in California. Yeah, which yeah. also says, I think that it's against the law for uh, the legislature ever to change that law or something like that. I mean, it's really bizarre in oh. California. Uh, but this is, you know, they say, really, let's look at the reality of the thing. And the court says, these are employees, right? Right. Yep. Well, they are workers. And as workers, they are eligible for certain basic right. benefits. Yeah. And, you know, and I think that um, I don't I'm not sure that's great news for Britain because yes. companies yeah. like Uber now is going to have to pay, you know, uh, uh, wages and benefits that right. meet with the law mm -hmm. and uh, and treat and their employees could probably organize, I imagine. Um, he, here in, at least in Montana, I think this is kind of all over to the United States, but at least in Montana, you are an independent contractor only if you are able to set, uh, your time that you work, mm -hmm. how you do your job, um, what clothing you wear, um, you know, all that kind of thing. Okay. Is it, so if in, in any way, uh, if you um, have to submit to working at a certain time or you have to wear a certain uniform or have to comply uh, with certain orders uh, from the company, that means you're not an independent contractor. That means you're an employee. Right. And so, and so, and it's really fundamental. It's, it's, it's actually, um, servant master law, which comes out of English, English yes. uh, common law um, right. is really what, what the, where the, the origin of that is. But, you know, and I'm, I'm simplifying, but really if, if, you know, the employer can tell you how to do your job or, and when to do your job, then basically you have, you, you are an employee. Yeah. yeah. Um, right. Right. A product of the, the UK's great tradition of fairness and good manners it reminds me of um before apartheid the uh, the category cape colored you were a person but not really right 
You're mm -hmm. halfway there. You're almost human. Sure. You got it. Yeah. Yep. So in any case, I think this is great news for workers oh, is. in the UK. And uh, unfortunately, as so often is the case, we're dragging behind here in in mm -hmm. the US. Aren't we but, though? And, well, and this it, is Boris's UK, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. This isn't the right. Labor Party. Exactly. Well, and, but, you know, I, I take some comfort, and Jim, you know, you, you can relate to this. I take some comfort that, you know, that uh, in, in biblical teaching, right, the, the first <laughs> shall be last. Right. And the and last, last shall be shall first. Be first. There you go. And, Wasn't that and Matthew? So, yeah. yeah. And we're, and we're the dude abides. Really <laughs> that's it. <laughs> We are right. working really hard to be last in so many things. And so, yeah. you know, you know, we're, I hope our children are due for a, you know, for something much better than what we have now. Oh, God, hope I pray we, that. Organize them. We have to, they have Otherwise, to, well, they're, and, and then they're going to have to organize. Right. Exactly. That's the only, that's the only way. Nice. Welcome back to Voice of the People, radio by and for the 99%. And you are listening to it on KFGM 105.5 FM in the Missoula Valley, uh, 1055kfgm.org live streaming, or um, on your favorite uh, podcast app, look up Voice of the People, radio by and for the 99%, and you can listen to it at your own leisure. And we are pleased uh, to have again on our show, uh, Steve Wells. Uh, he's a Missoula resident, and right now he's not in Missoula, and uh, that's why we have him on the show today. Um, so welcome to Voice of the People, Steve. Thank you. It's a pleasure yeah. to be here. Yeah, and so um, where are you at? I'm in Matagalpa, Nicaragua, which is in Central America, between... Uh, Honduras and El Salvador uh, to the north and uh, Costa Rica to the south. All right. So what, uh, what brought you to Nicaragua? Well, um, a few things, actually. But the main uh, reason I came to Nicaragua is because um, I needed some uh, dental work done. And I figured... Um, I should go to a place that I could afford the dental work I needed done, as well as a place that was uh, a safer place in the United States was uh, to get dental work done. In. Wow. Well, what, uh, um, so how's it going so far? I mean, is things going well with your dental work? Um, they're going, they're going uh, pretty well, just fine. Uh, I had the first round of dental work done in February, um, in early February, and um, um, and now I'm waiting for the the biointegration of bone and titanium uh, to get my prosthetics. Basically, I'm getting implants. I had a, a couple of uh, cracked. Uh, um, 
teeth removed. And um, um, so um, we'll see how it goes. I'm pretty confident in my, uh, in my they trained in, uh, in the United States and in Spain. So uh, they should, you know, from, from my first work uh, that was pretty well done, I think, uh, I'm, I'm quite confident that I'll have uh, decent work done here. Yeah, it's, good. It's about a third of what I caught in the United States. And, wow. And um, it was, um, it, it, I, I looked around for a long time before I did this. I had already done work for a long time in the U.S. because, uh, partially because I was volunteering in the Bernie Sanders campaign. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, then COVID hit. And I was at home for about nine months. I actually I only got one one teeth cleaning done in a year because of COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I realized that my teeth weren't getting any younger. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. And uh, I, I also had saved up uh, a whole bunch of air miles when I was raising my, my children uh, because I wasn't really traveling anywhere. And uh, so... Uh, from an economic point of view, it made a lot of sense to go to a country with that had uh, um, uh, dental tourism clinics, mm-hmm. um, so I could so I could afford to get it done. And so I began looking around at different countries and seeing what their COVID rates were in comparison to the United States. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I found was that. Almost all the countries I looked at had lower lower COVID rates than we had in Montana at the time, mm-hmm. and in uh, of course in the United States at the time. Uh, and um, I was uh, I noticed that the official the official rates in Nicaragua seemed very low. Of course, one of the things that people think about, one of the things that I thought about was, is this because they're not reporting COVID? in mm-hmm. Nicaragua. Yeah. Um, and um, what was interesting, though, was that they had reported much higher rates uh, last summer. And um, so it, it seemed to me that if they weren't reporting COVID rates, why would they be reporting higher rates last summer, but now very much lower rates? And uh, one, one of the, so I started uh, digging a little deeper and I'm I'm on Reddit and a subreddit that I'm on, that I joined was uh, Nicaragua, um, and I actually put the question out there, and I got a reply from uh, a heart specialist who works in in two different hospitals in Managua, and what he said is that um, they had a lot of COVID last summer, like June and July, mm-hmm. but that. Uh, their rates had dropped off significantly and they weren't seeing very many cases coming into the hospitals. They would, he said they hmm. were getting a couple of cases here and there, but they, but they weren't overloaded. The hospitals weren't filling up like they were in the United States. Wow. What, what um, did he say? What also, did he say the reason? Uh, I also looked, um, he actually didn't. As a matter of fact, um, I, I, I mentioned ivermectin and he poo-pooed, uh, he poo-pooed ivermectin. Um, which I'll talk about in a minute, but because um, mm-hmm. that was something else that I had been looking into um, uh, was uh, a drug called ivermectin, which they are using in places like um, Peru, Bolivia, uh, southern Mexico, Belize, and 
I found out uh, Nicaragua. I actually didn't know that at the time when I came to Nicaragua. I found that out once I got to Nicaragua that they've been using ivermectin here. Um, they call it, in Spanish, it's called ivermectina. Uh -huh. uh, but um, the other thing was, is I looked around for a dentist and I started talking to a dentist who's, uh, who has a, a, a clinic and about 60% of his, normally 60% of his patients come from the United States and Canada for things like implants, uh, high-end dentist, uh, you know, expensive dentistry where they come to Nicaragua because um, it's, it's quite a bit cheaper here. It's, it's even cheaper than in Mexico. And, and the main difference in price is basically in the cost of labor and the cost of things like um, land for you. Mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. like that because the, the materials they use are the same materials they use in the United States and those costs the same as they do in the United States. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So uh, um, he told me, this dentist uh, told me that his brother had a funeral, uh, basically a mortuary next door to his, his, uh, his uh, dental practice that last summer he, mm -hmm. His brother had gone from selling something like two two caskets a month to ten caskets because of COVID, but that now he was back down to his normal his normal uh, rate of funerals. Hmm. So uh, I found that rather intriguing too, um, and it was consistent with what the cardiologist had told me. Mm -hmm. So. Um, um, I guess I should back up a little bit and talk about ivermectin. Um, yeah, I, I discovered, I discovered through um, uh, learning about COVID online, basically, uh, through things like uh, groups like um, This Week in Virology, which I highly recommend if you're interested in, in virology and in the study of viruses. Um, it's a group on, uh, on YouTube. Uh, there's another, there's another place called um, Whiteboard Doctor, who has a whole lot of videos on all kinds of medical uh, uh, learning uh, topics. But since COVID, uh, uh, most of their videos have been on COVID and they have a wealth of videos on ivermectin and ivermectin's use around the world. Hmm. Um, Iver ivermectin is a very interesting drug. It was uh, it was invented in the 1970s. Uh, it was discovered by a Japanese researcher um, who had uh, found some bacteria in the soil and was looking into it. it. He thought it had very interesting properties on what it was doing to the, to the other uh, organisms in the soil around it. Um, and it was, uh, he, he was the first person to isolate the, the, the molecule, which is now known as ivermectin, and to uh, uh, bring it to market. He brought it to market as a, um, as a, as a I, I guess, he, I don't know if he himself did it or if he sold it, um, but it's, it, it was first uh, used as an a anti-parasitic drug. It was okay, hmm. but it was uh, given the go-ahead by the FDA in the mid-70s. And then in the 1980s, the FDA gave the go-ahead for use of ivermectin as an anti-parasitic uh, in humans. And, mm. and since the 1980s, there have been uh, about three and a half billion doses given to humans around the world. 
It has a, an extremely uh, high safety profile. Um, and then um, it's, it's also was interesting because it was one of the drugs that made the WHO and the CDC's list of drugs to look into for COVID. Mm-hmm. Although most of the drugs that made the CDC and the, and the WHO's list for COVID were never truly investigated uh, because it seems that there's sort of a bias to new medicines, uh, more exotic medicines. Um, and and um, there was a group of doctors called the FLCCC, which I think stands for the Frontline uh, uh clinician, uh, COVID clinicians. I forget what it's called. I don't remember it, but you can look it up. I would look it up. They have a ton of data. They, um, they're, they they were started in the U S but they were started basically around. They're also around worldwide. What they are Mm -hmm. is a group of doctors who decided to share information from their clinics, from their actual practice of treating people with COVID to try to help discover how to best treat COVID. Mm -hmm. And, and, and one of the things that they discovered early on is that ivermectin seemed to work really well. And hmm. they started using it in the United States and other, other doctors, doctors were using it around the world and they were getting great results. People, people were, be, were being cured instead of dying. When, when COVID first hit, they had nothing to use at all. Nobody had right. anything. Nobody had right. anything to use. And, and one of the things that these doctors all say is that people were just dying in mass and they didn't know how to stop it, you know. And, yeah. and when they started using ivermectin, and they often used ivermectin with other things because they were trying anything they could, they could think of that might work. So they were using ivermectin with uh, various antibiotics. Um, they were using the other antibiotics um, as to try to stop um, um opportunistic infections right because because things like because a virus is often open up the body to other infections as well right right so the so the ivermectin was more of a therapy after uh someone might have gotten covid not as a vaccine against covid right well it's not a vaccine first of all it's an oral uh it's Mm. a it's a it's a drug that in well I, i think they may have um injectable um, ivermectin and have had, but mm-hmm. it's generally used around the world as a, as a pill. It's an oral pill you take. Mm-hmm. And uh, what's interesting is, is that um, ivermectin actually won the Nobel Prize uh, for, the, for the inventors huh. uh, in 2015. Um, wh- when I first, a little while after I first discovered it, I was talking to my friend, uh, Larry Evans, who's a biologist. Mm-hmm. Uh, microbiologist his interest is of course fungus um, right and and um, he he had a friend in Bolivia who told him that they had given uh, they had handed out ivermectin in, in mass in Bolivia hmm. um, to they basically gone door to door and given it to everybody who paid taxes or something I'm not sure how they got it to everybody but they gave them packets and they contained ivermectin and, and one very interesting thing, you know, I, I started looking at the data from around the world, like in Bolivia and Peru. And one interesting thing in Bolivia was that COVID had been going up, 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 and then it just crashed. And it crashed much, much faster and much earlier than it crashed in a number of other countries. Mm-hmm. And um, of course, that doesn't prove that it was ivermectin. 
Um, um, when, when I got my flu shot, the, the nurse who gave me the flu shot, I told her about that I'd been looking at ivermectin and there seemed to be some interesting data. And I told her, and one of the great things about it is it's super cheap. It's ubiquitous around the world. It's used everywhere for, mm. as an antiparasitic. And she goes, oh, well, that's your problem. It sounds like there's no money in it. And, <laughs> uh -huh. and, and, that's, and that's actually part of the problem with even getting it tested for, you know, there's different standards of, of, of evidence that I learned this from, uh, from listening to uh, This Week in Virology and from the whiteboard doctor. Mm -hmm. There's different standards of evidence it, when they're when they're testing uh, when they're doing medical testing, and and yeah. what's considered to be the the gold standard is large scale double blind uh, uh, pl placebo, um, mm -hmm. uh, you know, experiments, and what that means large scale means that you you enroll thousands of people, and mm -hmm. but in, but in order to enroll thousands of people, it's going to cost you millions of dollars, mm -hmm. and. And since ivermectin is off patent, since um, it cost me about uh, less than a dollar a dose here in Nicaragua. Now, re re repeat that because you got uh, a little bit interrupted there. How much a dose did, did you pay for that? Less than a dollar a dose. Less than a dollar a dose. And how many doses? It's, did about, you 70, it's, about, 70 cent, it's about 70 cents a dose in Nicaragua. And you just need you just need one dose in order to have well, it effective. Well, they're learning. They're learning. Um, they're still learning on what on how to use it in terms of COVID. And there's also a, there's data pointing that it's um, uh, uh, maybe effective with things like yellow fever, dengue uh, fever, um, uh, other viruses. Um, one of the first that came out was a, an experiment from Australia uh, in vitro, which means in a test tube, basically. Test, test tube, um, yep. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, that where ivermectin uh, totally killed COVID uh, virus in about a day, just wiped it out. Wow. But, but one of the problems with that test was he used a lot of ivermectin and they... Uh, uh, said, well, maybe that's not, doesn't prove anything. And it, it, it didn't prove anything. I mean, it proved that it has antiviral properties, but it doesn't necessarily prove that it has antiviral properties in humans. Right. Um, but what I found, what I found to be interesting, uh, I mean, you know, in, in, in vivo, which means in real life, one mm -hmm. uh, pointed out is that the amount of ivermectin they used in the test tube isn't necessarily the amount of ivermectin in your in the cellular level in humans. Mm -hmm. And in order to get that kind of uh, concentration of ivermectin in the cellular level in humans, you would have to use uh, magnitudes higher than what the normal dosage for ivermectin is when they use it as an antiparasitic. Mm -hmm. um, um, so that's those are reasonable uh, uh, responses. I'm not. It yeah. doesn't prove that ivermectin doesn't work at all, but it, but those are definitely reasonable responses. Right. One of the yeah. one found to be very interesting was was it was an experiment out of India where um, they about 400 people. Um, and half of them no ivermectin, and these were healthcare workers 
who had positive CPR tests of people at home where they were living. Hmm. So in other words, they, there was um, uh, uh, all, all, all four under these, these healthcare workers had, they tested negative, but they were living with people who had tested positive. And they gave about half of them um, uh, ivermectin at uh, a ratio of about uh, two milligrams yeah. per kilogram of body weight. Okay. Which, which for me comes out to about eight, 18 uh, uh, milligrams. 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 Yeah, it's mm -hmm. right. Eighteen milligrams would be for my body weight. It's 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 two micrograms per kilogram of body weight. I want to be specific mm -hmm. here. I don't have anything written down, so I'm doing this all from memory. Right. Um, right. And and I'm not, and I should point out to everyone right now, I'm not a doctor. I don't have any particular expertise in 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 viruses. This is just what I learned from from listening to people who do have expertise in viruses. Mm -hmm. Well, that's, it, it's very, very interesting. And I think that um, even if let, it let takes... Me, let me tell you, let me tell you what, what I remember from, from the results of that test in India. Oh, yes. Is that, yes, please. Is, that, is about 60% of the, uh, of the group that got placebo um, later tested positive for uh, COVID. And mm -hmm. I think in a month they tested, they basically gave them placebo for a month and they gave the, you know, 200 people and they gave 200 people uh, ivermectin for a month. Mm -hmm. And I forget exactly their, their dosing strategy. They were using it like we were doing like that. But, mm -hmm. but you can look what's on the whiteboard doctors if you want, if people are interested in finding out uh, more data and better data than I can provide right here. But, um, yeah. but so the, the placebo group of workers got tested positive for ivermectin. I mean, for for COVID, whereas 11% of the ivermectin receiving group tested positive. For COVID yeah. At the, at the end of the month. Wow. So that's that's a substantial difference. Uh, yeah. And and uh, the. The test, the test is pretty interesting, but it has major drawbacks. And again, I, I, I would say, listen, listen to the Whiteboard doctor because they, they go through all these tests, all these things, and they talk about what the strengths of the tests are and what the weaknesses of the tests are. Mm -hmm. One of the most recent is on um, the JAMA article on an ivermectin test, basically found no... Uh, um, uh, statistically significant between the use of ivermectin and the use of ivermectin. Um, and, and on the face of it, you might say, well, then that proves it doesn't work. But really, if you go and listen to the breakdown of the actual um, study, um, one, one of the weaknesses of that study is that they used healthy people who had moderate symptoms. Um, and so in order to see a difference, you need to have a much larger test. It's not, the test isn't powered to be able to show, to, to be able to show a difference because whether or not that group of, of quite healthy people, young, healthy people who had mild COVID got ivermectin or not, most of people would recover anyway. 
know? Right, so, right, right. Well, so and, and, and you were, it's, you it's, were. It, it, it's kind of, it's kind of dicey. It's kind of. So you, you were saying that the Journal of uh, uh, the American Medical Association, JAMA, uh, had this rather small test and it was hard to really get much of, in a flawed test at that, uh, much. Well, all good. tests are flawed on some level or another. And, 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 and so yeah. we all have to remember that because there's no right. perfect test. And, right. and there's also no silver bullets in medicine. Um, you know, Absolutely. even the best vaccines, they, they claim are only, are only 95% effective, which means in 5% of people, they don't work, right? So, right, exactly. So, yep. So that, that's something to keep in mind when you're, when, when you're thinking about things. One of the tests that really I, I found to be very persuasive, that I found to be very interesting, were a couple of retrospective tests, mm. um, which aren't considered to be gold standard because they're not double-blind placebo uh, 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 mm-hmm. large-scale tests. Mm-hmm. But there's places in Africa where they, where they routinely give out ivermectin for parasites, like uh, there's there's places mm-hmm. in Africa where, that uh, large populations suffer from river blindness, which is caused by a parasite in the water, mm-hmm. and and ivermectin cures that. And so w- what they do is they give out ivermectin to these populations to protect them from from getting river blindness. It works really well, mm-hmm. but when you go back and look at those areas, those are the areas in country after country where there's no COVID or, yeah. or, or, or very, very little COVID. Um, in, 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 in Peru, a retrospective study in Peru, that's quite persuasive um, in, in, in political departments outside of Lima, they started giving out en masse ivermectin to everybody hmm. because there was, evidence that it worked and and uh, but in Lima for political reasons they didn't give it out while 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 uh, COVID continued to climb and soar in Lima it dove in all these departments where they were giving out ivermectin Hmm. Um, then about four months three or four months later they started giving it in Lima where where it was still going up and then as soon as they started giving out ivermectin in Lima, it crashed. So yeah. um, you could say, and pe- people do say, well, that doesn't prove it was the ivermectin. It could have been something else, right? I mean, and, and that's that's legitimate. Yeah. When you start looking at the evidence, when you start looking at the weight of the positive signals over, over – uh, uh, many, many different uh, from many different countries in the world, uh, it starts to look pretty clear that ivermectin works. You know, at least yeah. works to some degree to protect right. people from COVID. And yeah. and um, mm-hmm. um, anyway, yeah, I was well, going to listen well, to what you had to say for a second. Oh <laughs> well, it, it, yeah, is and and it's cheap enough. It sounds like that. Uh, really, the cost, you know, is fairly neg i mean you know it's still a big cost in aggregate but uh far less than a lot of these vaccines right that are uh pretty oh, pricey it's far less it's not, yeah far it's, less it's, so it's interesting um here's here's some other interesting data um the the, the frontline uh uh clinicians uh 
in COVID care, I think that's what it is, the mm -hmm. FLCCC, um, they um, lobbied uh, the Senate to get the NIH, the National Institute of Health in the United States, which is sort of the gold standard of what works and what doesn't, mm -hmm. to look at the new data on ivermectin that had been coming in from all over the world. Mm -hmm. And um, they actually did that. And they, and, the, and they sent their representatives to the National Institute of Health who went over the new data and their recommend, the National Institute of Health's recommendation had been negative, don't prescribe uh, ivermectin for COVID. After reviewing the data, they changed their recommendation to neutral, which means hmm. that physicians and their patients can now decide whether they think that ivermectin would be helpful for the patient and they can prescribe it and be within NIH guidelines, which is actually mm. huge when you think about it. That's a big deal. Yeah, um, that is. The NIH yeah. is, 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 yeah. So um, they're saying here, my internet connection is unstable, but <laughs> yeah. now, now that left, so I guess it's back. Yeah, so, so this so is- when I got, So the way I got to, yeah, so it's, in, it's interesting. The way I got to Nicaragua is I booked the airlines and then Spirit canceled my ticket. Then, then I booked a ticket, uh, uh, and and Spirits was really Spirits ticket was super cheap. So then I booked the mm. ticket using Alaska Air Miles and with American Airlines, who's an Alaska partner, to fly me from uh, my final leg from Florida to Manaba. But they, mm -hmm. then 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 American canceled uh, mm. my ticket. So why? I re um, well. The Nicaraguan, the Nicaraguan government at the end of last summer had basically placed a requirement on anyone entering Nicaragua that they have a negative COVID test within 72 hours. I see. And when they said anyone, they meant anyone. They meant mm -hmm. anyone. And that anyone also included airline flight crews. And oh. so the airlines, the airlines, uh, weren't going to put up with some little uh, Central American country telling them that they had to test their flight crews before they could go stay at a hotel in the country. Mm. Uh, so uh, most airlines refused to fly in to Nicaragua. Mm -hmm. um, the only the only airline uh, that was flying in in January was Avianca. And now mm -hmm. I think Copa is also going in. But since they have a semi-monopoly on the... On the uh, Airlines flying in and out of Nicaragua. It costs about a thousand or nine hundred tickets to go from uh, uh, Miami to uh, to Managua, which is mm. about a forty-minute flight. Mm. Well, yeah. So it's so, <laughs> these things are are, are so more complicated. The way I came in was I flew Alaska. Yeah, I flew the way I flew in. I flew in Alaska to. Uh, uh, to Liberia, Costa Rica, uh, ah. which doesn't require a negative COVID test, but they do require that you fill out a health certificate and that you buy health insurance. So if you uh, have to be isolated or have a hospital stay because of COVID while you're in uh, Costa Rica, that you have in health insurance to cover it. Uh, wow. So yeah. that adds a little to the cost too. If, if anybody goes, they should buy it. Uh, 
you can buy it online much cheaper than if you wait until you're in country or if you buy it even mm-hmm. in Costa Rica. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But so, th- so then, so then I had, so then I had to take a, um, I took a taxi to the border from Liberia and I had to walk the last 50 feet with my baggage. And then I was met as soon as I cr- crossed the first gate in, in uh, Nicaragua by a man who had what they call a, a, a tricycle here, which is a, a tricycle, basically, that is used to transport both uh, uh, things and people. They use, them, uh, they, mm-hmm. they use them in a lot of places as bicycle taxis. And right. So that, I asked him how much, and he told me, um, um, he told me, uh, for a tip, basically, para una propina, which is for a tip. Oh, I said, well, that's that sounds like it's worth it. And, <laughs> yeah. and, and he carried me and my luggage, which I had quite a bit because I came for three months. Um, he carried me and my luggage through all, the whole process of entering uh, uh, Nicaragua. Um, and so it was it was quite useful. And then he took me to where the bus was so mm. I could continue my journey to Managua. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I gave him five bucks, which later on I found out was like people told me, well, you made that guy's day. Well, <laughs> you know, oh, good. It's quite, quite a bit. Of, and the interesting thing he told me is that he was part of a cooperative um, that they, that that. Uh, that a cyclist who worked the border have a workers cooperative. Oh, nice. So, oh, good. Um, right. I guess it was his. It was his turn. He's the guy that showed up to help me, and there was a few other two cyclists that were there, but they didn't bother to ask me because I guess he, he he was next in line in the mm-hmm, cooperative. Mm-hmm. So, wow, that's yeah. that's uh, very interesting. And you know, we're um, about out of time for this segment, but I would like to uh, have you come back and talk more about your adventures in Nicaragua. How long are you going to be there? I'm going to be here until the end of April. Um, so who knows? In, in some ways I've been, I've been thinking of uh, crossing out of country and, and, and coming back in for another three months. I'm having such a great time. It's, it's really fun. <laughs> it's, it's, it's low crime. It's probably lower crime than Costa Rica. And mm. the people are all really nice. There's a lot of culture. There's a lot of art. There's a lot of music. Uh, I'm really enjoying myself. Well, that sounds great. We'll uh, we'll all be down there in, in about uh, five days. So right on. <laughs> you, we'll see you then. You can... <laughs> <laughs> um, well, um, uh, Steve, thanks uh, so much again. Um, th- this has been Steve Wells, who's kind of uh, reporting to us from Nicaragua. Um, and, uh, and we can maybe have some more stories. I know you were telling me other stories. You're breaking but, up. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah, well, it's, uh, um, we'll just roll with that. And, uh, but thanks, Steve, and we'll, uh, we'll be in touch and we'll, we'll get some more stories out of you. Yeah, you know, you know the ivermectin part. It's it's rather in depth and rather complicated. It's hard to go over. Really fast. I really do encourage people to check out the whiteboard doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, they are really good at at, at analyzing studies and of, of basically of assessing out what it shows, what it doesn't show, and um, they have a lot of good information. So check them out. Cool. 
All right. Well, thanks, Steve. La flor más linda de mi Abonada con la bendita Nicaragüita, sangre de Tiriangen, hay Nicaraguasos más dulcita, en la mielita de Tamagas. Pero ahora que ya sos libre Nicaragüita, yo te quiero mucho más. So w- w- welcome back. We're going to, uh, uh, we just got done with our interview and we are going to talk about Bamazon. Oh. Hey, Bamazon. <laughs> Excellent. Sorry, I won't sing anymore. 
<laughs> it's okay. We we need more uh, singing on this show, actually. Uh, one day I, it's going to be Bread and Roses. One day, oh. Bread and Roses. <laughs> So Jim, well, yeah, you got that's an excellent idea. Yeah, Jim, you I got have, something on it. Oh, um, observations because I'm living in the area, but I don't see it on the local news. But what is happening is really significant. And I'm uh, um, two weekends ago, my son and I went down to um, Birmingham area from where we're residing, closer to the Tennessee border. And we went to a museum for the iron and steel industry in Alabama. And they had a Civil War reenactment, of course, you know, to celebrate um, the iron and steel industry. And, uh, <laughs> and it was interesting to learn that, that, that that area became a really big deal during the Civil War because, the, you know, there was a blockade. And the only source of, you know, weapons are in the manner that they were necessary in the mid-19th century, not the, you know, glorious past, was steel. And, and they had a very substantial steel operation going on to, to produce, um, you know, ingots for an armory and, you know, cannon forge and in Selma and uh, general grant thought, well, you know, why don't we just put them out of business? So they, there were three cavalry units numbering over 14,000 people <laughs> that the North sent down there to, um, you know, take care of the steel industry. And it was the largest engagement of um, cavalry on one side that ever happened in North America. Hmm. So, but right after that, we went only a few miles away to the Bessemer, um, you know, um, fulfillment center that, that, uh, you know, Jefferson Bezos has built, you know, outside of, <laughs> of town. And I, and, and there was, you know, and there were, and there was picketing going on got to talk to people, got filled in. And uh, I, I thought the irony was just, <laughs> was just too <laughs> overwhelming for me that, you know, here, you, you know, here you have an industry that aggregates a whole bunch of people. And then you similarly, a hundred and, uh, you know, 40, 50 years later, you have a, the same society reconstructed, supposedly, where the where where the workforce, which is like eighty five percent black, in that facility of Amazon's, um, wants the union to come and save them. It was, uh, not necessarily cavalry this time, but a union in more conventional terms. And I. I uh, the unfairness of the Bessemer facility is astounding. One of, uh, you know, Amazon has contributed nothing to a, a, an, a fund within their company that would reimburse people for having hazardous jobs. But um, 
But the company in days of COVID has been so enriched that it's almost incomprehensible. Mm. Yeah. So, uh, for example, okay, so black workers comp are 27% of Am Amazon's workforce nationwide. And um, the union organizers estimate 85% of the workers are black at the Bessemer plant. So the, the, the company shared little of its astonishing profits with them. Amazon last year earned an additional 9.7 billion in profit. That's an 84% increase compared to the year before. Uh, those are very big numbers. It's almost incalculable that they're, they've, they essentially, you know, doubled their business <laughs> in one year and made another 10 billion in profit. Stock price has gone up 82%. And um, Mr. Bezos, you know, Colonel Jeff Bezos, has had his fortune increased by $70 billion this year. You know, is that, is that all? Yeah, I know. It's 38 times the Guys, total hazard he's pay. Living. He's trying to make a living, Jim. I know. It's a poor, <laughs> a poor Cuban immigrant. I know. 38 times the total hazard pay has paid Amazon's 1 million workers since March which the union yeah. is especially unhappy about. And um, on Wednesday of this week, the, you know, the Bernie Sanders um, Senate committee on uh, inequity had yeah. Jennifer Bates ad address the committee and she's an Amazon employee and Bessemer. And she, she detailed it. Um, you know how one-sided the uh, the the attempt has been to try to try to organize. She said that uh, the company has had education meetings that last about an hour, and they've been having at least one a week, sometimes more. Of and in this meeting, there is no discussion, no feedback. Of the company is putting you know, literature in bathrooms for people to read about how terrible unions are. They've been infesting people's cell phones with, uh, you know, voice messages telling them how terrible unions are. And her point was, which is so, <laughs> which was stunning to me in, in, in retrospect, because listening to what we're talking about today is that she asked the committee, why is it, Amazon has to put all this effort into um, trying to convince people that what they're asking for is wrong when all they really want to do is be heard. They want their employer to understand what they're unhappy about. And she said, that's all we want. We just want to feel like we are part of what's going on there and have a voice. So I don't, I don't know what the committee discussion was like after that, but um, it was awfully compelling stuff. And the election's happening at the end of the month. And it's going to be very, very interesting. Yeah, the NFL has been sending people to the, you know, to kibitz on the picket lines. It's, uh, you know, there's a huge effort 
being mobilized here. And I, there, in one remark I heard was that some of the Bessemer warehouse workers have asked Amazon just to reinstate its $2 an hour hazard pay. So hazard even in the world of COVID, and, and, these, and most of the employees are from communities that have, that have living conditions forced upon them that make them more likely to get COVID and more likely for it to be fatal. So um, there was an essay in the guardian last month. that was um, from, you know, uh, guy you guys are familiar with labor journalist, Stephen Greenhouse. Mm-hmm. And it introduced a, a guy named Daryl Richardson, a 51 year old picker at the Bessemer warehouse. And Richardson voiced his frustration about the dehumanizing nature of the work at Amazon and the unrelenting pace, the risk of being terminated at any point, and the constant surveillance. And I'll quote here, you don't get treated like a person, which was a lot what, what Jennifer was saying. They work you like a robot. You don't have time to leave your workstation to get water. You don't have time to go to the bathroom. As Amazon's profits climb, end quote. So the workers seem to be saying, make the workplace more humane. Yeah. Well, one, one of the things that a lot of people don't understand is that um, under the first amendment of the U S constitution, uh, people have a right, have a freedom of association. This is the, constitutional underpinning of the National Labor Relations Act. In other words, what that means is that people have a right to form their own organization. And uh, really, uh, Amazon really doesn't have any right to say boo about it. I mean, it's not their Mm. organization. Workers aren't telling Jeff Bezos not to, uh, or Colonel Bezos, right? I like that. Um, (laughs) Colonel Colonel Jefferson Bezos, that's yeah. even better. I, I appreciate that. Um, that, uh, that the colonel, um, you know, the workers aren't telling the colonel that he can't hobnob with Bill Gates or that he can't, uh, you know, uh, own the Washington Post, right? They're not telling him to do anything except they want to they have a voice on the job and because they have some intolerable situations there. And really everything, you know, the PRO Act would make a lot of that illegal, what Bezos is doing right now. Um, because, because actually it's not his, any of his business, whether the workers, that's, it's the workers' business. It's not the mm-hmm. governance business, whether workers organize into union, and it's not the employer's business. And lots of employers, boy, they hate to hear that, but that's exactly the, the reality of it. Well, as Ronnie would say, there you go again, Mark, with all that, all that stuff about people's rights and uh, quality of life. Right. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, I don't remember. Well, you know, Birmingham has a really interesting history, which surprised me because it, as in the civil rights movement, it has the wrong kind of history and lots of it. And that I was surprised to learn that, you know, in, you know, black and white miners organized to form the United Mine Workers Union. And um, 
following the United Mine Workers' success, what is then known as the Alabama Federation of Labor followed the same strategy of a racially integrated membership. And in, in part out of fear that non-unionized black workers would replace striking workers. Now, when yeah. was that? When was that, that they, they the had? The 30s, I think. The 30s. No, it okay. might be further back than that. I'm sorry. I think it might yeah, be. I, I know in, here in North Carolina, down in Gastonia in the late 20s. Okay. Going round and round. But I mean, it may have been different in Alabama, but in, in uh, uh, the garment um the textile factories right estonia down in the southern part of the old northern colony here um they were going round and round about whether the union should be integrated or not right and mm -hmm. there were two people who wanted who said we must integrate we must have the african-american workers who are in the uh, factories with us integrated with us into the unions, but it was a huge deal and people were shot and things like that for mm -hmm. having talked about bringing black folks. in. But there, there was an article that I just looked at briefly this week that I think the headline was something like um, unionization at Bessemer is a black lives matter issue because yeah. Jim, such a huge percentage of the workers are black and such a huge percentage of the people who live in the town, apparently, also mm -hmm. 80%. So it's not, whatever's decided there is just not going to be a, it's just not going to be, it's going to be racially important, right? Right. And yeah, yeah. yeah. When you talk about textile workers, uh, suddenly I see Sally Fields holding up a sign that says strike. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Norma Ray. Yeah. Right. That's right. That's right. And I think, and, I know, think that, I think that took place in North Carolina too. It's, it's based on a true story. Yeah. yeah. And I think it was, I think it was North Carolina where that, where yeah. that happened. But you what, know, I, I can't imagine really what it must be like for these uh, organizers at Amazon in Bessemer to be and and the and the employees to have to be putting up with for this is like a six week voting period or something right yes yes I think the 29th of this month or something but it's been going on for a long long time all of these you know the education meetings sound like they could be called re-education meetings yes like, yes Rouge or something like that yeah and that's just, just what I was thinking the constant being deluged with propaganda, uh, propaganda, right. disinformation right. from these people who make a ton of money consulting with Amazon to keep down the union. Mm -hmm. um, right. Firms yeah, who are could, just consultants for that. Yeah, and people, the 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 organic leaders within right uh, the shop have uh, their their jobs are on the line, right? It's illegal to fire people for organizing to mm -hmm. a union, but that, that doesn't stop employers from firing people. In fact, there's, I think um, a few years ago, and I'm sure the number is, is bad now, is, or if not worse, I think there was, according to the National Labor Relations Board, there was at least 29,000 workers a year 
that were being fired for legal union activities, right? Union organizing mm-hmm. principally. And those are the ones that are reported to the NLRB. You can right. bet that the numbers are triple, quadruple that easy. Uh-huh. Um, and, and what it does is it sends a message. It, everyone knows, oh, yeah, if you talk to the union, you might get fired. No one has to tell them that. Okay. Everyone mm-hmm. knows. Everyone knows in Montana that's exactly the case. I, I ran into that time and time again. And so the, the kind of courage that it takes to organize, you mm-hmm. know, with both hands tied behind your back at this time, you know, uh, in, in U.S. law is just, uh, it, it just takes a lot of guts. And but, you know what? I'm not sure. I'm not confident they're going to win. Um, but what does mm-hmm. give me more confidence that they could win is a couple of things. Okay. And so our um, kind of the, the uh, uh, Mike Elk, who we quote a lot on this show, he's right. got payday, payday report. Um, he, he brings a couple of good points as to why this might be different than the Volkswagen, uh, mm-hmm. you know, UAW Volkswagen uh, defeat uh, last year or the year before. And he said, number one is that the uh, retail workers union is uh, in the community, right? It, they, right. they have five 5,000 members in the Bessemer, Birmingham. I mean, Bessemer is basically a suburb of Birmingham. Exactly. Right. right. Yep. And, and so there's, there's already 5,000 members there and that they have been doing real organizing, mm-hmm. right? The, the, the members and helping out. Uh, as long as well as you know, having from uh, Stuart Applebaum, who's the head of the retail workers union, they've you know nationally they've of course sent uh, organizers in to help and to um, mm-hmm. and so you know and that and and they're doing it they're doing it kind of in the local community right that they're doing yes. the organizing they're doing house visits and that sort of thing which. Um, which, you know, uh, for union organizing was actually kind of pioneered by uh, Fred Ross, as a matter mm-hmm. of fact. Um, but uh, so so what they're doing is they're they're reaching workers where they can. And if they win, I think it's going to be entirely attributable to the kind of deep organizing that that they were that the union was doing <clears throat> with local organizers and in within the plant as well. Yeah, that's that's absolutely the case, and that you know there are uh, there are some members of the our uh, retail workers and uh, you know delivery people that are out of sight and out of mind. But a lot of these people are retail clerks. <laughs> they have faces, they have names. You interact with them when you go into the store. At least you did before COVID. So they're 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 not they're they're seen in a um, in a constructive light mm-hmm. and, um, the signs that are outside of the gates are Stacey Abrams representing the union. And she, it, it, there was a really tough election in Georgia and she took them both and cleaned them out. Yeah. Using way. deep, using yeah. deep organizing and deep, uh, exactly. canvassing yeah. tactics. Yeah. And you've set me up perfectly, Mark, because there's another way in which deep organizing and grassroots makes a difference because back in the early days when there was a, 
of the AFL and the Steelworkers Union being, um, you know, built from the floor up. Um, you, you know, the union's first vice pre five vice presidents were black. The, this, the inclusive labor movement continued until the 1930s when U.S. Steel, rife with Klan members, began mm. to restrict job promotions for unionized black workers, limiting access to senior positions you know, mm. they already had held. So you get, you get the high-roller, professional, well-founded union that's, that's comfortable with, with, uh, with employers like U.S. Steel and it's it's an organizing body that looks out for U.S. Steel, and uh, and and the organization is not a means to an end; it's an it's an end in itself. Mm -hmm. So there it is, yeah. just just as we were talking about an hour ago. Well, um, may I uh, may I say I just again I just noticed a couple of days ago that um, the. Uh, retail workers and department store union may be finding themselves with a rather large ally. In Wonderful. This. Yes. And that would, that would be, please. That would be the Teamsters. Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Teamsters because union. The Teamsters see Amazon as a direct threat to their work organizing the trucking industry. And according to an article today or yesterday, um, they are engaged in a concerted project targeting Amazon. And though they are, quote, tight-lipped about the details, they appear committed to a long-term nationwide effort that could make them one of the company's most formidable union foes. Wouldn't that be interesting? And they talk about how they responded to problems in the industry because of working conditions that were happening in the 1920s and 1930s and 1940s. Oh, yes. Back in day, back they, days. They, they see some similarities today. And um, uh, one fellow who is um, an organizing veteran who, who deals with Amazon um, said, despite the popular view of the roaring 20s as a grand era, history clearly shows that working people suffered greatly. Right, right, right. Here we come back into the roaring 20s again. Is this a repeat of history? We've got to ask ourselves. Mm -hmm. And then he talks about how uh, Bezos is always talking about how he pays $15 an hour. Well, this fellow Corgan said 30 years ago, as a uh, member of the Teamsters, he made $15 an hour. So there's <laughs> hardly, you know, Mr. Generosity here. Mm -hmm. But yeah. um, he says Amazon is the primary driver of a process that's changing, changing warehouse jobs that once paid a living wage mm -hmm. in low income tenuous temporary work and mm -hmm. this article points oh, out like gig workers yeah what we all yeah, want to be yeah points out that the teamsters is 1.4 million members strong mm -hmm. more than 10 times bigger than the rwdsu so mm -hmm. uh, uh they're worried about the trucking industry because you know, look how many Amazon trucks you see. In my little neighborhood, we see a couple of Amazon trucks going by every day. Mm -hmm. uh, 
is a little cul-de-sac sort of loop neighborhood. So uh, it could be that the Teamsters are, I think the title of this article is The Teamsters Hint at a Combative National Project to Organize Amazon. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. from In These Times. So that could be somebody mm-hmm. about the, uh, the Davids down at Bessemer, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Well, um, that that's a that's a story we definitely will keep following. Um, yes. We are one more week end, <laughs> before one the more, vote. Well, well, right. but you know, I, I think I think the Amazon story is going to keep going, right? Oh, Whether yes. or not we, we will yeah. find in a week's time, so we'll come back and find out what happened and maybe some analysis of that, you know, in, in mm-hmm. our next show. But we're going to have to uh, call it a day here um we're uh, we are out of time and you know i know it's disappointing um (laughs) i know (laughs) we have too much fun here um yes Mm -hmm. well and and i you know thank our friend of the show linda jillison uh, as always linda you're excellent and our sound sound guy jim Galan. I didn't say Jalan, but a Galan. <laughs> You're getting and, better, uh, fella. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, an excellent show as always. And uh, we're so glad that you stopped by to listen to our show. This is Voice of the People, radio by and for the 99%. And um, you were listening to it, uh, hopefully on Missoula Community Radio, which is really our home yes. um, and that and that's uh, kfgm 105.5 low power fm in the missoula valley 105.5 kfgm.org live streaming on saturdays mountain time from noon to two and uh at any time in any place that you have uh a signal uh, whether it's nicaragua or north carolina <laughs> or alabama or montana uh, you can listen. Yeah, you can listen to us on uh, on our on any sort of podcast uh, app, um, right. uh, Spotify or whatever. Just look, right. search for Voice of the People Radio by and for the ninety nine percent, and you can find this show and past shows as well. So, um, thank you very much, and uh, we hope you listen to us next week. Sure.
Democracy is coming to die. 